Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2007 Coen Brothers film, No Country for Old Men. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Barrett, uh, this is one of the movies that I had on my sight and sound list. And uh, to quote from this movie, as as we're preparing for this conversation, I feel like I might be overmatched. Like there's <laughs> there's it's always tough when it's a movie that I have seen mm-hmm. a lot and love because I feel like how, how are we ever going to fit fit any of this fit any of this in and, and will anything whenever i like something i feel like i can never say anything intelligible about it so we'll see we'll see how we do here um let's just start with when we've this is our third cohen brothers movie we watched um oh brother where art thou and we watched true grit mm-hmm. um, and this falls in between those and i want to talk a little bit about where this fits into their career because i think this is a pretty unique moment but before we get to that uh, do you remember this film coming out what's your history with this movie yeah i remember it coming out i i i, I saw it in the theater um and I'm trying to remember, and I can't, if I had watched it on video since I saw it in the theater, um, I don't think I had, but it's it's a movie that made such a strong impression on me. I mean, there were so many, there were so many scenes I, I could recall, I mean, much differently from other films that I revisit after 15 years or so. So I wonder if I have seen it again since I saw it in the theater. But yes, I saw it there, and um, I was a confirmed Coen Brothers fan by the time this film came out, so I certainly rushed to it. Yeah, I have to say I'm jealous because I've never seen this in a theater because 2007, my son was two years old and my daughter was born that year. So we were not <laughs> we were not going anywhere yes. that year. Um, so in, in 2007, it's a particularly great movie year and we missed all of it in theater. So I've had to sort of piece it together uh, afterwards. Um, uh, this film comes at a, a unique moment, as I said, in the, the Cone Brothers uh, I think filmography, maybe a pivotal moment. Mm. Um, so, you know, if, if we, if you think about their, their, their filmography, you have kind of their early indie films, blood, simple raising Arizona, Miller's crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker, and 19 that's so that takes them up mm-hmm. to 1994. Then you have the big kind of breakthrough moment with Fargo where they get, uh, uh, McDormand wins wins the Oscar for that. They get nominated for tons of awards. They don't. It doesn't win a lot, but but it is sort of a, a moment of arrival for them in in a kind of way. Um, from there, you have Lebowski, um, which has a complicated relationship, I think, with a lot of people at first, but becomes a very beloved film. Oh, brother, uh, the man who wasn't there. Um, I didn't quite know how to categorize this because that. That's a movie I need to revisit. I I know some people really love that movie. I didn't. It didn't land with me great mm-hmm. the first time, but it, I'm open to it being great. But then they have kind of, I think what everybody looks at as a bit of a dip, mm-hmm. um, with Intolerable yeah. Cruelty in 2003, Lady Killers in 2004, and it's mm-hmm. even as a fan of the Coens, it sort of felt like, mm-hmm. oh maybe maybe they've sort of done what they were gonna do. And mm-hmm. then No Country for Old Men comes out in 2007. And then I think they go on a run of movies that are really, really interesting. I'm a big fan of Burn After Reading. I don't know what your, your <laughs> sense is of that. Yeah. But after that, it's Serious Man, True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. which those three are are all mm-hmm. unbelievable. And then mm-hmm. they've only made two films since then, Hail Caesar in 2016 and The Battle of Buster Scruggs in 2018. And they may be done. I think, you know, if you if you uh uh, listen to them, you know, when they give their very infrequent interviews, there's this sense that, I don't know, maybe we won't make anything else, which makes me very sad because I, I deeply want more Cohen's movies. Well, and yeah, and then Joel did Macbeth on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, right, there's like, uh, yeah, are they going to kind of go their own way or not? So it'll be interesting to see. So, um, where does this movie, I mean, we just went through like chronologically where this fits into the Cones body of work, but uh, how do you see this fitting in with other, with the sort of the rest of their filmography? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting question, Sam, because there's a part of me, and I, I mean, I don't, won't deny this, there's a part of me that simply says it's their best film. But it's also not a typical Cone Brothers film. So to say it's their best film is to say, well, have they sort of um, created, have they made a film that isn't within what you might even call the Coen Brothers genre? It's almost like they've created their own genre of film. So, you know, when I think about kind of the quintessential Coen Brothers films, I think about Fargo uh, and I think about Big Lebowski and probably Serious Man. I think if I had to pick three and say, you know, this is the Coen Brothers. Um, So 
Yeah. So, in, so in that sense, to me, it, it kind of stands alone uh, because it's the one, it's the one film they they've made. Um, and my, my memory of a series of uh, of the man who wasn't there is a little shadowy, like the film itself. But I think this is probably the one film they made that isn't kind of drenched in or characterized by their typical irony. Uh, you know, this this is a film. I mean, you have some ironic statements by the sheriff, by Ed Tom. But the film itself is very serious about its subject matter, um, and so I think in that respect, it's it's also unique among among their among their films. It has other characteristics very typical of their films. Obviously, they they work with Roger Deakins, uh, and the cinematography is typically uh, amazing. But at the same time, the soundtrack is kind of minimal, uh, which is also sort of unusual for a for a Coen Brothers film. So I guess what I'm saying is it's it's kind of a unicorn, but um, at the same time, it's it's a Coen Brothers unicorn. Yeah, and 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 there there are ways you can connect it. Like uh, I think it's uh, and, and I want to talk about adaptation in a minute here, but like it's their first real adaptation. I mean, they claim things like, "Oh, the um, Oh Brother is an adaptation of the Odyssey." It's like sort of, but it's yeah. not. I mean, like this is this is a real adaptation, and then they go on and make True Grit, which is another really faithful adaptation of a of a text. Um, so, so like to me, it's, well, those are related in that way that they're, they're saying, mm-hmm. well, what, what would it look like? Um, <clears throat> I asked my daughter last night, you know, does she have any thoughts on this? And I was so proud of her. She, she said, you know, it did make me think about Fargo because, and she's like, yeah. there's lots of parallels between this and Fargo. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it's like, we are telling of like, uh, a similar kind of story, but shot through a very different lens, you know, um, and and with a little with, with with different storytelling, but there there's there's lots of things where you can be like, well, this is a kind of doubling of Fargo sure. in that you have these very you know you have you you could mask people onto folks, and it's not exactly, but it's it's interesting to think about them in dialogue. When I think about the Coens, um, I, I struggle to figure out what I think their best film is. To me, there's about six films that where I'm like, well, the, if if you told me. That Fargo, Lebowski, No Country, A Serious Man, True Grit, True Grit, or Inside Lewin Davis was their best film. I would hear you out and be like, maybe, <laughs> maybe you're right. So when I put this as my sight and sound pick, it was like, well, on this day, mm-hmm. I feel like this is the one. But I could get argued out of that uh, pretty easily. Um, I actually really love where we this film fell in conversation with other things where we we've been watching because of the fact that. I think this is a really interesting take on adaptation compared to some films we've recently watched, which are adaptations of literary works in very strange ways. I mean, you think about uh, 2001, we talked about as a strange adaptation because it's being, it's adapting a novel that's being written as the movie's being made. So it's an adaptation or it's this co-creation thing. Tarkovsky stalker is an adaptation where it's like, he wants to take, the kind of world of this movie and the or this book and the concept, but he wants to get rid of most of the rest of the novel. Mm-hmm. Kiss Me Deadly. I mean, Aldrich basically has disdain for his source material, <laughs> you know. And this is one where it's like we have whether whether they have reverence for for the McCarthy novel, or but they they definitely want to shoot the McCarthy novel. This is about as faithful of an adaptation as i've seen with mm-hmm. the possible exception of true grit which also seems like a very faithful adaptation mm-hmm. of the portis novel um so you know I, I i think that i think it's it's interesting i'm curious have you have you ever read uh the either this novel or anything from mccarthy yeah i've read several mccarthy's and i did i did read this novel um uh Probably not long after I saw the film for the first time, and I I do remember that it was is faithful. I um, I did a little bit of review of that, looked at some some critics, and yeah, there's there's a few things they've um, they've kind of cut out, um, but there's not much they've changed. And as I recall, the novel the novel's a little more strongly in Ed Tom's voice, although his mm-hmm. voice is here. Um, and, but yeah, I, it struck me at the time as a, as a very faithful adaptation. Evidently Cormac McCarthy visited, visited the set and was pleased with what he saw. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they, they jokingly said that to write the screenplay, they, one of them read it out loud and the other typed, uh, yes, which is yes. of course not, not, not the case because they do make some choices in this movie. Like you said, um, in the, in the book, I, I reread this, this weekend in the book, 
Bell, I think, leads every chapter with a little piece yes. of narration. Yes. And they keep a lot of that narration. They just jam it all together at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. so that the long kind of voiceover at the beginning is actually multiple pieces of mm-hmm. Bell narration, you know, put together. And they do what they end up doing is making this movie feel like less of Bell's movie until it is his movie at the end. I mean, mm-hmm. I think when when Moss dies and it becomes you kind of realize like, oh, we were watching this in the way Bell is sort of watching it. It's like, so it's almost like that's, I mean, he obviously doesn't see these things, but as a, as a police investigator, he can kind of, he pieces things together a little bit. So there is this sense that, that, that um, uh, we don't realize it's that, that this movie, he is kind of, he is really the main character in a weird sort of way at, by the end because he's reflecting on all these things we've seen. And by the way that they shift that, the first part of the movie really is more Moss and Jaguar. And Bell is is not in it that much, and he's really so far behind all of the action that we're watching. He feels less central, like I said, until he is central at, you know, as we get to the last maybe half an hour of the movie. Yeah, and I and I think that helps to explain one of the reviews that I read was um really uh didn't like the fact that we don't really kind of get our coda with Moss. You know, there's there he's dead. And then when Bell goes to see him in the, in the morgue, you don't even get to see him. And it's almost like, here's this major character. Now he's just kind of shunted off. And I think that's, I think that's a deliberate strategy on their, on their part to say, um, <laughs> it's not that Moss was a, Mac- a MacGuffin, but he, He's not the, I mean, the point with Moss in many respects, I mean, he's a really interesting character in his own right, but I think what they're doing at the end is saying part of the point with Moss is um, Ed Tom Bell's relationship to him and especially to Carla Jean and the assurances that Bell has made to her about what he's going to do. And I think part of his, and not really his fault, but part of his failure sets up kind of the end of the of the film and the end of his of his career so i think it's i think it's appropriate that at that point they say no it's too bad about moss but the focus really really here has to kind of come back to ed tom Mm -hmm. and and in reality that is what mccarthy is doing because even in the book moss is this is not the right turn of phrase but moss is killed off screen in the book as well like Mm -hmm. you show Mm -hmm. up and he's dead and you and and it's it's really almost off-putting. You're like, wait a minute, I've been following this guy, and now he's dead, and we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so even those things which feel like, oh, that's a filmmaker choice, is like, well, that's actually Mac- I, so many mm-hmm. things. Um, this is what struck me out reading the book. So many things felt like, oh, clearly this is a Cohen's move or this is a Cohen's line, and then you realize actually that is McCarthy. There is mm-hmm. Cohen's stuff in here that isn't <laughs> McCarthy, but it's it's often stuff that you that you wouldn't expect there's lots of things that are actually mccarthy um one of the things that i love about something that they i don't know if they if they exactly add it but they emphasize it even more than the book is how much this movie is about doubling and tripling mm-hmm. like you keep going back to the same location um and and you keep going through through different people's sets of eyes or you see a character do something. And then later you see another character do that same thing or revisit that. Um, uh, and, and I, I mean, like, like a perfect example of that is the, the site of the drug shootout, right? We see Moss mm-hmm. go there the first time and he's kind of, you know, inspecting it and, you know, and, or he dis- uh, discovers it, gets the bag of money and then he goes back the next night. Right. So he's doubling himself. Mm-hmm. And then we go back then again with Jaguar and the two managerial uh, <laughs> folks. And then we go back with Bell and Wendell. And every time that location has changed, mm-hmm. it's both the same and it's changed. And we're seeing them, in essence, in their heads, watch the movie, right? They're looking at it and saying, well, what is the story here? And the story keeps adding because we keep having these visits. Um, and so much of the movie does that, you know, in a way theme we keep talking about this is a movie that teaches you how to watch it right it's like okay well we're watching people figure out the story as they're looking at it yes because it's a movie with ellipses and it and it's expecting you to kind of fill in so this must have happened or that must have happened or how did this come about so it's yeah so it's a movie that really i think in that respect 
And there's a number of ways in which the movie engages us, right? I mean, it engages us with just some classic suspense moments, but at the same time, it also engages us because it's, it, we always got to keep, we're, we're like Ed Tom. We've always got to kind of be figuring out what exactly is, is it that's going on. And it's kind of fun to watch characters like Ed Tom, you know, you watch the wheels spinning as things kind of fall into place for him as he, as he figures it out. So you're right. He's, he's both in the movie, but he's also kind of watching the movie with us. Mm-hmm. And and so so the another the, the the second place where they do this tripling, which I think is is great, uh, is the is the Moss trailer, right? So you see Moss go back when he first gets the money. You see him come back. So again, he returns twice. Then we see Jaguar come, mm-hmm. and um, we even see actions doubled. Then and this this is this is one of those things that I love that you see him take the milk. He sits, he stares into the TV and he looks at his reflection in the, 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 the TV. And then when Ed Tom Bell comes, he, you know, is looking at the lock and then he sits there and he, you know, he drinks the milk. And this is when he has that line about Moss. He says, he's seen the same things I've seen. And it certainly made an impression on me. So there is this sense of like, and he says that as he's looking at his reflection, where we have seen Jaguar's reflection. And it's like that, that's just like such a perfect movie moment. Now, a version of that is in the book, but it it plays so differently and so much more powerfully because that there is something so much better about seeing that visual without them hammering you over the head with it, where in text mm-hmm. you kind of have to just describe it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I and I want to say this one kind of quick plot thing about the trailer and and one of the reasons why it's important that the movie is set in 1980. Um and that is that Shigur is able to look at the uh, the, the AT and T phone statement mm-hmm. in order to figure out where they might be going. And, uh, and if this were a cell plan, uh, he would have not have access to that information. So you're always wondering, you know, from time to time, how he's getting the information he's getting. And I kind of really like that particular touch. I also love the uh, I, I love the, the the repetition of the milk drinking and and you know Ed Tom Bell observing that the uh, the, the milk bottle is still sweating so therefore he knows that Shigur has has just been there so that's one of the ways and we can talk more about this later that's one of the ways in which the film has um film noir elements uh right that he is he is a detective following this trail and figuring out the clues as is Shigur I mean Shigur is doing the same thing as well as he's looking for the clues as to what it is that Moss is up to like that so he knows so you get the doubling for example with the uh with the money bag being hidden hidden in the air vent and you get the big payoff at the end when Shigur knows exactly where to look for it. Well and and, and what I, what I that's what I love about the 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 phone bill thing is that it is it's weird to think of Shigur as a procedural character yeah. almost more than Ed Tom Bell. Like, I mean, it, that feels like an all the president's men moment. We have a phone bill. Let's start calling every number on the phone and figure out who, you know, and it's like, you don't think of your like <laughs> homicidal bad guy as like having to do the, the kind of um, shoe leather to figure these things mm-hmm. out. But we see him do that in this. And I, and I, that's the stuff that I really like. And I think that's, that's one of the things the cones were really interested in. They were interested in these looking at these kind of lone men all doing, doing these procedural things. Now, what I love about the doubling is they, they, they hit that or, or really tripling. They hit that so hard early that later on they don't have to do it, but you know, it's there. So for mm-hmm. example, when Moss goes into the Eagle pass hotel, he, we see him check in and, you know, and then we see him go to his room and it sets up one of these great suspense moments, but we don't see Jaguar check in, but we mm-hmm. know he does because it's like, well, we've seen this. We, we, mm-hmm. you know, they don't need to show it anymore because they, we already know this is how this works. <laughs> he is going to do the same thing. And we're, you know, and so, so instead we can kind of fast forward to the moment in the same way they, they train us certain things like, like we're trained to know that uh, Jaguar cares a lot about getting blood on his boots. So in the very mm-hmm. end, when Carla, after he leaves Carla Jean and we see, him, we don't see him do any, we don't oh. see him kill her, but all we see is him check his boots and the cones have taught us. Okay. Mm-hmm. We know what happened. We don't mm-hmm. need to see this because we, because they've taught us how to, how to read how this movie works. And I think that's such a brilliant moment. Yeah, that is. Um, now, what's what's interesting about uh, about the doubling or tripling is that within the story, and it some it almost maybe took me a second or third time to realize there's actually a quadrupling because there's another 
group that we don't see mm-hmm. as often and that's the the mexican cartel mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. also going back to all because like they go back and they're the ones who take the the uh the drugs from the truck and they're the one like they're also circling back on all of these things so there there's a fourth group that that and, and it the first time you watch it it feels like why do these people keep popping up and then you have to you realize after you've seen it you're like oh they've been also doing all of this we just aren't tracking them as part of this story which adds this kind of layer of complexity onto it as well mm-hmm. um so we talked about procedure and and i like i said I, this is i think when you listen to Cohen's quotes, this is one of the reasons they were interested in this story in particular. I uh, I was reading, they had this vision of wanting to produce this uh, James Dickey novel to the White Sea, which is mm-hmm. about this World War II uh, pilot who gets shot down in, uh, over Japan and has to by himself kind of survive and work his way through um, to safety. And um, there's a lot of elements of that in this where, where, What's interesting is when you think about procedural, you tend to, as we talk about, you tend to think about like police procedural, but Mm -hmm. this is more Moss and Jaguar. We watch them go through all of these steps. So like when Llewellyn first goes to the shootout, you're without knowing yet that he's a, uh, an army veteran. Like if you, if you pay attention to how he approaches those trucks, I mean, he looks like a soldier in a Vietnam movie, the way he's holding his rifle, the way he's, scanning and look like like you realize oh this person's been through some stuff without having to like do what maybe another movie would do would give us some kind of flashback or narration we're just like oh he 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 knows how to handle himself in this situation um and we're and we and i love the moment where he starts to kind of reason out like mm. hey where if i were the last man standing where would mm-hmm. i go and he mm-hmm. he tracks the blood just like he tracks the blood of the, of the antelope that he shoots. And, you know, and there's, there's um, uh, all those little procedural things. And even like when, when people get shot and there's an impact of injury that maintains and sort of grows over the course of this movie to the point where we get the self-surgery scenes and things like that. So this is very much interested in some of those procedural elements. One of the things that I, uh, that I love about that opening scene is the, uh, the way that, uh, his tra- his his effort to shoot the uh, the antelope, uh, and you know he's got the the rifle fixed on it, and he and he mutters, "Hold still." And of course, Shigur, the first murder that we see him, or the second murder we see him commit, when he stops the motorist, and he's got the uh, captive bolt pistol, uh, and he says, "Hold still," and uh, he he gets his man, but and of course this is a bit of foreshadowing. Uh, foreshadowing uh, Moss uh, misses or doesn't or fails to kill his antelope and I think that tells you right from the beginning uh, who's going to win this battle Mm -hmm. and and it also I I mean there's an interesting piece with Moss there too um, that we see come back really soon after this is that Moss kind of wings the antelope he hits it but doesn't kill it and it's like and he acts out of the responsibility of like well I shot this thing now I got to go find this thing that I shot like instead of being like, well, I guess I missed that. Right. And that's, it's the same version of he wakes up at night and thinks about the fact that he needs to bring that guy water, you know, that there, that, that he feels a kind of responsibility to the things he encounters. And that becomes, you know, one of the things that, uh, sets part of this movie in motion, um, is the fact that, that he wakes up in the night. And so, 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 I mean, a lot of this movie has to do with kind of what codes do you live by? Um, and, and Moss, we see him in those two moments um, living by some sort of code or some sort of at least feelings of responsibility. Well, it's, it's both a deep irony of the movie. And I suppose you could also argue that it's one of the ways in which the movie's philosophy, or I would say Cormac McCarthy's philosophy more. Uh, I'm not sure the cones have a coherent philosophy, but it certainly is a um, certainly is a bleak one. Because in a sense, what sets everything in motion is the fact that Moss decided to, he decided to atone for his failure to help. Of course, at the time, he didn't have any water. This is true. He didn't have any water. But the fact that he goes back and uh, tells Carla Jean, I'm about to do something dumber in hell, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that he goes back is one of the, it's a gesture of, of, it's a, it's a gesture of conscience. It's an effort to make something right. 
And so a person chooses to do ultimately the right thing. And the result is all of the ensuing mayhem. You know, it's possible, of course, if he hadn't gone back, there is still the transponder. But he would have been a true needle in a haystack. They, would, they wouldn't have even known where to begin to look for, for him as a result. And the transponder clearly only works at a certain distance. So I, so to me, that, that, that's, that's, to me, that's what's ultimately bleakest about the film, you know, is the idea that no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also love the, I mean, that this movie is, is, um, you know, the thing, the thing before going back is the, uh, almost like classic trope of like finding the, the, the bag of money. And then Mm -hmm. what does that do to a person? Um, and it's interesting because I don't know if this is true for, for other people, but like, this is actually a reoccurring dream slash nightmare of mine. I often have a dream where, where something happens and I find a it's usually a like a wallet that's loaded with money or a literal bag of money and this becomes uh it's usually never a good dream it's usually a nightmare <laughs> so maybe that's partially why this movie uh connects with me too is like i that is something that in my head for my whole life has been this 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 uh this play that i play out very often you know in <laughs> in, in my sleeping hours um and that's the thing that that I mean that that's the other piece of this that that sort of sets this movie off and then it creates all of these great suspense moments. I mean there there is I, I remember the first time I saw this movie not knowing exactly where it was going to go and when he goes back with the jug of water and it's the darkest dark of night at least for that point and then it gets light really quick. Um when he looks up at the ridge and sees just his truck and then he looks back up and you see another truck and you see the silhouettes and then you see the truck lights turn on and uh this is a terrifying movie like 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 there are so many moments like that where they they build they they build a kind they they build up the suspense like when he goes back and he sees that you know the truck is now shot out and that guy's been shot so and so you realize like okay so somebody else has been here and then when that when that chase starts happening you know you get the you get the scene with the dog and even there's the procedural moment of like getting out, blowing out the water from the gun just in time to, you know, to shoot the dog. That's, and that's, that's where Moss first gets shot too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also begins the like slow uh, degradation of his body too, you know, throughout the, throughout the movie. Um, and then um, they do some, they, there, there's, I think this movie has two other like amazing, amazing suspense scenes in terms of how they're constructed when Moss goes back to get the money from the air vent in the other room. And that's paralleled with Jaguar mm-hmm. preparing mm-hmm. to bust into Moss's original room. We get, for one thing, we get another great procedural thing. Like when he goes to buy the tent poles, <laughs> what is it? What is happening here? And then you watch him create a sawed off shotgun. You watch him build this hook. And at the same time, you're watching Jaguar inspect the room he got and at first you're like why is he like he's like measuring how thick the walls are and mm-hmm. all of this and then you realize when he goes in he's basically studying to say okay where are these people where's anyone going to be in this room and so like mm-hmm. i don't even know that there's somebody behind that wall i don't remember but he definitely shoots that wall because he's like a person could be here a person could be here um and as moss is is i mean it's this tense moment of him trying to get the money out of the vent just because it's a hard thing to do and you all of a sudden you hear the machine guns rattling as he's doing that and you realize all of this stuff is happening at the same time and it's this it's this terrifying moment of like they are that close to each other and uh don't and they don't even necessarily know how close they are to each other which is then mirrored at the end when when uh Ed Tom Bell goes into the hotel room at the end and Jaguar is right there too and there's this moment of is something going to happen or not and that so they create that suspense moment in there as well yeah, yeah I, lo- I I love that parallel and um and just and it raises the question of why Shigeru, who has not hesitated to kill uh police officers you know why he lets Ed Tom kind of off the off the hook um it's it's just it's a it's a it's a it's a great it's a great moment of um kind of I guess you would say sort of restraint on Shigeru's part for whatever mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason uh I guess because he wants to be sure he gets away with it 
Yeah. And then the most, uh, perhaps the greatest uh, suspense moment in this movie, and maybe one of the best that I've encountered in movies is at the Eagle pass when Llewellyn finds the transponder and he's just sitting on the bed with the shotgun. And he, and you can, um, when I listened to this movie, when I watched it with headphones on, I could, I realized you can hear Jaguar checking in at Mm. the counter. Mm. Um, It's very faint in the background because that's partially why he calls down to the desk and realizes Mm. nobody, um, nobody answers. And then you just watch the light at the bottom of the door in and and then you watch, you watch him walk up and walk past and the light shuts off. And I remember the first time I saw this, like, uh, literally leaning into the movie sitting at the edge of my seat and when that you even know the lock is going to pop off but when it does it's such a strange thing to happen that it when it flies at him and then he shoots and 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 runs and you don't and you don't see the other side of the door so you don't know what happened to Jagger cuz like there's a moment where it's like did he just kill him he just shot him <laughs> and then and then that then that other um you know the 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 big sort of street gunfight ensues, but the tension of that moment, because it is so slow and you never see outside of the room, but they create for you through a little bit of sight and just sound. Cause we've seen, again, we've seen him enter, enter hotel rooms before we know how he's going to do this, even though Moss doesn't know how he's going to do this. Well, and then, and then the ensuing choreography of the, of the battle out on the street. And, um, you know, I was thinking about the fact, I, I guess it's the middle of the night, so it explains why nobody is around. But it is, it's kind of kind of weird the way it unfolds with no witnesses or, or no no police or anything like that. But that that I, I just think the, the the cat and mouse mm-hmm. of, of that of that um of that duel between the two of them. And then the way that you know Shigur is he's a kind of an alien figure, but he's not a superhuman figure. I, I, I think, I think one of the things I like about, about him as a, as an evil character is he's, he, you know, he, he, he is evil. Uh, the sheriff in El Paso calls him uh, a lunatic. Uh, Ed Tom calls him a ghost. Uh, when Steven Root's character asks, um, Carson, uh, how how deadly he is he, and he says well, compared to what bubonic plague. Um, so there's all these ways in which he's built up as this kind of super superhuman, but at the same time you see the vulnerability of his body, and of course the film concludes with that as well. And he's like, it's more like he's an Energizer Bunny. It's mm-hmm. like he just he takes the licking and he keep and he keeps and he keeps on on, on clicking. Um, but so I so that's that's what I love about that gunfight because i think by the end of it that's when of course i knew how the film was going to come turn out but still at the end i was like okay if if luel if moss couldn't win this battle i don't think he's going to win the battle i think this was his last best chance to finish off shigura so it's pretty clear that his days are numbered now and i think it's i think with with shigura it's interesting because he's there are there are a few moments in the movie when he seems to be like almost stymied by somebody like like one of my favorite scenes is when after he goes to moss's trailer and he goes then to like the trailer park oh, um, yeah. uh like office and talks to the woman there and it's like and it's interesting that i mean this movie's called no country for old men this is an unbelievably male movie but there are a few women in this movie and they're really interesting mm-hmm. that that woman is just like i have no time for you i'm not going to do this did you not hear what i said and and he seems he seems rattled by somebody who won't like play along with with like I am here being terrifying, and uh, and there's this moment where you hear a toilet flush and he realizes oh great there's somebody else here now mm-hmm. and he just leaves and it's like he got beat in that moment and, yeah. and it's like and that's early in the movie so it does sort of show you like it is actually possible in a kind of way to stand up to this guy but maybe it but maybe you can't be it you can't do that if you're trying to be. Llewellyn Moss, if you're trying to be, you know, uh, if you're trying to be another like uh, or or Carson Wells, for that matter, like Mm -hmm. like in in essence, I think, you know, I think I think women stymie him in a particular kind of way. Even Carla Jean at the end, she's like, I am not going to play your game. I'm not going to call this. And it's why in that moment I had this sense when I first saw the movie, like, is is she going to defeat him in a kind of way? Like I had this sort of moment of hope with that because she was not 
doing what other characters in the movie do uh, the other male characters in the movie do towards him. She was more like the woman in the, uh, uh, in the trailer park office. So that's why it's even more gutting when you watch him look at his boots at the end and realize, nope, she got it too. Well, you know, I, I think one thing it shows about him uh, is he he does make calculations, right? He is he has he has a code as you've alluded to, and he has a he has a thinking process. I think the, the I think the the big difference between what happens at the end with Carla Jean, and you're right, there's this moment when you think, oh, maybe she's going to talk her way out of it, or maybe she's going to call the coin. The difference between that and the woman, uh, the the woman at the hotel motel is um, he's already on the scene when Carla Jean arrives. In other words, he's already in control of the mm-hmm. scene. Uh, and even, you know, and, and, and even with the Carson thing, he takes Carson basically into custody, you know, in, in, in all of those scenes, he is the one who's initiated the action. So I think that one of the differences is he's kind of coming into her office. Uh, and although I, I think, I, I think if the toilet hadn't flushed, she, 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 she might've been a goner, but, at the, but at the same time, um, his relationship with her is it's transactional. And if he can't get from her what he needs, there really isn't any point in killing her. So, so, so m- most of the people that he kills, he kills, you know, he kills people in order to get their car. Um, the, 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 the one encounter that doesn't fit well into this ski, into that theme, but I have a different explanation for it is the encounter with the, um, at the gas station at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, you know, he's not, He's not stealing anything there. I'm sure he's going to pay for the gas. That's not a problem. But that's more, to me, that scene is there because it tells us that he does have a philosophy that he operates with. Uh, and, th- and so that introduces the coin flip, which is important later on with Carla Jean. And it introduces one of his codes or one of his philosophies of life, which is basically we're all here by chance. Uh, and and what what... However, the coin flips, that's just the way it's going to be. And so he actually ends up being constrained by the coin flip. So if he flips the coin and the gas station owner gets it right, which he does, he does in fact live because that's what Shigura kind of, if he believes in anything, he kind of believes in that. So that's the one time when he doesn't kill in order to get something but uh, or he do- he doesn't kill, but he doesn't kill not because he was out to get something, but because he was out, he was illustrating for us, I suppose, and for himself the nature of his quote unquote philosophy. Well, and that that's I think the one of the big uh, sort of themes of this movie is sort of the idea of chance or fate or choice, and um, you see lots of characters expressing sort of different ideas about this or saying different things about his, I mean, Jaguar obviously has this, you know, that there's this kind of um, chance or gamble, you know, to it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we're going to flip this coin. And even the, even the, the, one of the first things that Ed Tom Bell says in that opening narration is the language of gambling, right? He says, uh, I always knew you had to be willing to die to do this job, but I don't want to push my chips forward Mm -hmm. and go out to meet something I don't understand. So even that has the language of like, like doing this job, living this life is a kind of, is a kind of gamble is Mm -hmm. that there, that there is this, this sort of element of chance. Now, what I find interesting about the, the scene with Carla Jean is right after that, you get what is the most almost like freak occurrence thing in this whole movie, which is the car accident, Yeah, which is completely, un- I mean, everything else feels like, like you could say it's chance, but maybe it is this sort of fate. And, and, you know, um, Luan says at one point, things happen, you can't take them back. There is this, like, once this story is set into motion, it is going and it is going in an inevitable direction. Um, and this, so this movie has this sense of inevitability to it. And then the car accident seems unrelated to that inevitability. It just seems like this, I mean, which it is this absolutely out of nowhere thing. You know, it's not like the Mexican cartel is driving the other car. It's just somebody runs through a red light and T-bones it. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, yeah. So it's entirely, if you want to live in a world governed by randomness and chance, there's a good example, but it's also somebody who's breaking, who has broken a very fundamental rule. Don't run a red light. So, so, so it's, it's almost as though you have the, the, the lesson is that you can't actually rely on any particular law. 
because even a simple traffic law will not necessarily be enforced. So if you're going to live by chance, you may, you may in fact die by chance, which Shigura does not, but he's, you know, who knows what happens to Shigura, off he goes. Uh, and, and I think there's, a, the, I love the line when, um, when he's talking to, uh, to Carson Wells about, you know, whatever, whatever sort of rules or codes. And he says, you know, uh, if the rule you live by led you to this, of what use was the rule? Yes. 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 Um, and, uh, at the same time, there is, uh, well, I guess, I mean, there, there's characters who may be push, pushing back against that idea of sort of inevitability. Like, like when, when he tells, uh, when, when, Ed Tom Bell tells Carla Jean the story about the, um, I think Charlie Walzer is his oh, name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he said, you know, he ends up saying, he says, even the, even in a contest between man and steer, the issues are not, or the, the outcome is not certain or the issue is not certain. So there is this sense of like, uh, is there an inevitability or, or, or is it, or is it still like, I guess that, that, that speaks to sort of against an inevitability and speaks to sort of a, a, a kind of a, a randomness or, or chance. Um, at the same time, this movie does have this push of a kind of um, broader inevitability. Um, I, I think about the the conversation with uh, with Ellis and Bell at the end uh, mm, at the end mm. of the movie. Um, uh, it's both an inevitability of like 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 you can't stop what's coming. These things are these things are coming. But then he's also saying like this isn't new that this has always been, yes. Um, you know, the, uh, what, what you got ain't nothing new, you know, and he tells the story of their uncle uh, of his uncle Mac and how he died and mm-hmm. how, you know, and it's just like, like that also is this sort of inexplicable thing, you know, like, like in the same way people are struggling to understand Jaguar, they're struggling to understand sort of the change that's happening in the world around them. Um, and you know, that it's, it's, it's vanity to think that it's going to wait for you or that you can, that you can change it. Yeah. And it's, it, it's very much a, a McCarthy view of the world. Um, you know, it's not just Texas. It's not just the end of the 20th century. It's, it's the world is no, is no country for old men. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty bleak place for him. Um, one of the things that I find interesting about this movie at the same time, um, is I think this movie's <laughs> as as bleak as it is in in lots of ways, um, and this is this is a very Conesy thing. It also has these weird moments of being very funny, mm-hmm. um, like like uh, and, and it's mostly and there's even a line in there where where uh, when they're when uh, Sheriff Bell is talking to Wendell when they're in the cafe and he's reading the newspaper and he says and, and and Wendell laughs at the story he's reading and then he says like oh, I laugh sometimes too like what else what else can you do you know um, and 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 there it's so strange how like I, there there's so many lines in this movie that I find funny and they're not like funny moments but it's just someone's response to something or they're they're uh, trying to describe something so so like I love when. Llewellyn calls uh, Carson's hotel room after Jaguar has killed him. And he says, is Carson Wells there? And he says, not in the manner that you mean, <laughs> you know, like that's a, that's a very funny line or, or, or when they're looking at the, um, when, when Wendell and, and Ed Tom are examining the shootout scene and uh, <laughs> Wendell's trying to talk through it. And he just says, well, it looks like they were ready to make a trade. And then, whoa, differences. You know, it's like, that's just, it's a, it's a, it's a funny way you know, kind of, and now what's interesting is a lot of that stuff's McCarthy too, Yeah, yeah you know, that, yeah. that like, I think about, okay, is that like the cone sensibility working themselves into this? But, um, uh, but it's not. Well, um, I, I also love the fact that same scene, Wendell says it's a mess, ain't it sheriff? And, uh, and Ed Tom says, if it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, another moment I find very funny. It's not, it's, it's more that it's, a. It's more of this. It's a bit ironic, but funny is when uh, uh, Moss gets picked up uh, by the. the, He's given a ride, and he's given a little lecture on the dangers of hitchhiking. Yes, (laughs) I realize that uh, this substitutes for a hitchhiking scene in the in the book, Um, but I just thought as a comment. I mean, if there's anything in his life that is not dangerous, it's probably hitchhiking. Right, right. So, so that's an example of a of a of a a character in a moment that that is the cones putting something in there um uh, the two other things that i that i could think of that were 
scenes or characters that were movie creations. One of them is, I think, the woman at the um, at the trailer park desk. Mm-hmm. I think is a, is, and the other is the guy who drives the chicken truck. Mm-hmm. Um, who's one of my like? I love that scene. I love that. Yo, so you're just gonna light out for the territories. Like that actually feels like a character I've seen in other like in other Cohen movies, both in terms of like the actor's look, his performance, what he's like, the kind of his kind of manner of speaking. There are those, these little moments where it's like, well, we have to put a little bit of ourselves in this as well. <laughs> exactly. um, one thing that's, that's touched on a little bit more in the book. Um, and it definitely appears in this movie that I find interesting, but they don't comment it on as much as like, as much as this movie is about kind of this, you know, on the ground violence, you know, between these people, there is also this like behind it is this corporate element as well. Right. The, the Steven root character, you know, you go to this, this, you know, high rise uh, skyscraper office and you realize that there is, you know, there is this like other force behind this. And again, the book comments a little bit more on this when it talks about like the, uh, the dismal tide, you know, that it's not just teenagers with green hair, but there's also this like, this sense of kind of fortunes being made behind the scenes that you don't see. And uh, this movie doesn't lean into that, but it is interesting that we go to, we go mm-hmm. to that office with Carson Wells and then Jaguar Jaguar comes back in there and he made a comment that I hadn't noticed before that I find really interesting in terms of thinking about who Jaguar is, which is after he kills him and he says, you know, he gave the Mexicans a transponder too. And the, the accountant guy says, well, he thought, you know, the more people and mm-hmm. Jaguar says, you choose the one right tool. Yes. Yes. And I'm like that's, that's yes. That's that's the thing that like I want to keep thinking about is like okay, what is it like? I'm thinking about that character and um and sort of that that's another piece of his philosophy. You know, is is that is that you choose the one right tool, and he carries around the one right tool as mm-hmm. well. And it is and it is a very unique tool, and 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 it is sort of in some ways this perfect thing for. I mean, it's a tool built for execution specifically, whether it's executing a steer or executing somebody on the yeah. side of a road one of one, one of the uh, reviews i read called uh called shigur a walking abattoir which which is which is a wonderful description because because that's exactly what he does i i counted 13 murders <laughs> i'm not sure how many um how, how many you came up with but he is he is a walking abattoir and he's uh, you know he occasionally uses a gun when he has to but he prefers to use the captive bolt pistol Yes. Um, one name that you mentioned that I think is a, a big piece of this. Well, actually, let's talk about two filmmaking things. First, uh, we have not talked about the near absence of score in this movie, yeah. but yeah. it is maybe one of the most important pieces of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that and Roger Deakins, who we'll talk about in a moment. I think like 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 they they helped to make this film. So it's interesting. This has a Carter Burwell score, yeah. but I think I was listening to something, and I think it's about. 16 minutes in the movie, seven of which are during the credits. So about nine minutes of the movie, there's a little bit of added sound. And even that is sort of a droning ambient mm-hmm. you would almost miss it sound, which um, I apparently this was a debate between the two brothers about like, do we have a score or not? And I think it was uh, Joel was adamant, like, no, we're going to do like it's better without. And when you think about some of those tense scenes, like in the Eagle Pass Hotel, where, where Llewellyn is sitting on the bed waiting the fact that there is no music and only only the sounds of the footsteps and the hissing of the oxygen tank and all of that stuff would get lost in the in in the score or um the score might betray the storytelling because the storytelling in this movie is enough for that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and it, it, it's it, it swims so much against the tide of classical hollywood right the idea that you know, you you need the music in order to help the audience know how to how to feel, um, and and maybe it's because you know we're we're an audience which has learned to live with different kinds of ways of creating suspense or different expectations about the sound. But you're right; I think that sound in those situations, or music in those situations, more precisely, um, would take away from the way which, as you said, you want to hear the hissing of the oxygen tank, you want to you want to hear the clicking of the boots. Uh, you want to hear the heavy breathing. I mean, all, all those elements have to be there in order for us to respond the way they want us to respond. Well, and this that this is a movie that is has some big, you know, actiony sequences and set pieces, but at the same time, this is a movie that is slow and quiet and about details. You know, it is about it is about every little detail, and it's why 
you know, it's why we have to watch the self-surgery scene and it's why we mm-hmm. have to watch. Um, I mean, I think about, I think about when you see Moss um, after, before he goes back home after the first chase, you know, when he kills, after he kills the dog and you see him picking bits of fabric out of his wound and you realize like, Oh, ev- we're going to see everything. We're going to see, we're going to think about the ramifications of everything that this is a movie about small details. And I think the, I think that, um, that lack of score helps you to recognize some of those auditory details as well. I just, I, I just have to make a little side here, uh, Sam, since you talked about the self-surgery scene with, with um, Shigur. Um, by the way, I've read it in my eyes several times during that. Um, but I just love the way he gets, he gets his materials, right? I mean, he could, he could walk into the pharmacy and buy them. Uh, but no, he decides to blow up a car <laughs> instead. Now, of course, that's partly because he doesn't want to be traced in any way. He doesn't want anybody to see him. But I just, I just love the way that his response to any problem or any situation is to somehow do something violent or aggressive. Uh, and, and, it all, and, and it works. And I, and I love watching that because you're like, well, what exactly is he up to? Is he going to siphon the gas because he wants, you know, what is it? And then you realize, oh, I see. So I just, but I love the fact that he creates chaos in order to bring order back into his own, his own life. The, it's like there's a balance. The more chaos he creates for others, the more order he has in his own world. I have to say my that's the one scene where my daughter said something out loud and, and it's after the car blew up and everybody runs there and he goes in the back and she just said, that is brilliant. It's like, oh, what a great idea of like, if you just want to go in and take stuff, create the biggest diversion you can, <laughs> then you can just walk right in and and, uh, and take what you want. We need to talk about Roger Deakins really quick here. I mean, he's a yeah. longtime Cohen's uh, cinematographer and mm-hmm. um, apparently as they were sort of creating the look for this film they looked uh they they, he and the coens looked at a lot of mark rothko paintings um Mm. like um kind of blocks of color and you you know and and uh and and you think about the uh if you've ever seen rothko's paintings and you think about the what the um landscape looks like here like it it, it's it's gorgeous in the way those paintings are gorgeous where so much of it is so spare that 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 you just kind of have the when I think about the look of this movie, I think about just these strips or bands of color that make up the um make up the landscape. And the other thing that I think about, um, have you seen the Fablemans yet? Not yet. It's okay. on my list. Okay. There, there, there's I don't think this is really spoiling anything, but because this is a story that um that Spielberg has told many times, but he talks about the have you heard the story of when he meets John Ford? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so because I thought about that in this movie, so um, famously, young Spielberg meets John Ford, who's one of his heroes, and uh, and he has like a few minutes with him in his office, and Ford shows him a painting, and it's like a Western painting, and he says, "What do you notice about this?" And Spielberg starts to describe it, and then he's like, "No, no, what do you notice about the horizon?" And the first one, the horizon is really high. Then he shows him another one, and the horizon's really low. And Ford says, "The only thing Ford told him was like, Ford said the horizon is high." In the screen on the in the image, it's interesting. If it's low, it's interesting. If it's in the middle, it's boring. <laughs> and I looked at this movie, and all I could just all I could do is think about that. Is like this mm-hmm. they 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 took that lesson well because there there are so many moments from where I just was watching the horizon, and it's like wow, it's at the very top of the screen, or it's at the very bottom of the screen. Mm-hmm. And Ford is right; it does make this all look so interesting. Yeah, Ford. Yeah, Ford knew how to compose a shot, no doubt about it. Uh. Is there anything else you, we didn't really talk about the very end of this movie? But is there anything else you want to talk about with this? Yeah, before we get to the very end, yeah, a, cu- a couple of quick things. One is um, I'm always interested in what people are watching in in a movie, and so when uh, I wondered when about Moss, this, yeah, when Moss comes home for the first time, Carla Jean's watching TV. She's watching the 1953 film Flight to Tangier uh, with Jack Palance. Uh, and I haven't seen the film, I will say that, but I will tell you that one of the plot points of that film is searching for a missing $3 million. Okay. I think that's why it's on the TV. I uh, wonder, I wondered, and I was like, I, I, there's no way I can figure out what that is, but that's... Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, actually found, I actually found a blog where somebody has started on film within film, which, which, which talks about films that appear within films, which is always interesting to me. Um, you know, I want to make a quick point about the genre of this film. I think that's a it's a mar- a marriage of the western and 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 noir. So so in in the western 
which is one critic put it, the Western allegorizes the optimism of the American psyche. So the Westerner, and Ed Time is a Westerner, and Moss is a Westerner, uh, that character is faced with overwhelming odds. In fact, one review I read compared Ed Tom to um, uh, to Gary Cooper's character in High Noon, Will mm. Kane. Uh, they face with overwhelming odds, but then they persevere, and, and, and because they're skillful, they overcome come those odds and triumph. So the film plays into that, but doesn't really fulfill that. Film noir, by contrast, the hero is smart, usually more or less. Many obstacles are overcome. You could see Moss is, is playing that role to a certain degree. The odds are against him, or Ed Tom too, and he fails to overcome them. He's overwhelmed by the evil of other people or just the world. And then so that film noir in that sense reflects pessimism and fatalism of the American psyche. So I think that that's what maybe McCarthy did at first, but I think that's what the, the, the Coen brothers are doing. I think they're, they've created a Western neo-noir. Uh, and I should say this. Uh, well, let's talk about the ending. Do, do you have so this has this this famously has a, an ending that is baffling to lots of people the first time you see it. It's also the exact ending of the book mm -hmm. where um uh bell has retired he's talking to his wife uh about two dreams that he has um and both about his father the first is going to town and his father gave him some money and he lost it yeah. uh, and he says and the second one is about he and his father in the old times riding horses his father rides on ahead uh you know into the dark and cold carrying fire and he says you know his his father is out there has built this fire and is waiting for him. And he knows that when he gets, when he gets there, his father will be there, which, mm -hmm. you know, speaks to, this is also a, you know, the, the title should tell us, this is also a meditation on aging and dying. And, mm -hmm. you know, both the, the, um, the dying of a perceived way of life, but also literally Ed Tom, you know, reaching the, reaching the end of his life or contemplating the end of his life. And it's so interesting. And he says, you know, he was i'm 20 years older than he was when he died so in that sense i'm the older man mm -hmm. um and you know and he, so he says this and then and then he famously says then i woke up it cuts to his wife looking at him you hear this clock ticking and then when it when it cuts to black you hear the clock continue to yeah. tick you know as as the as the seconds you know tick away thoughts we, on this on this as an ending yeah well first of all i just want to say we haven't pointed out that tess harper his wife we saw a while ago when we watched uh, tender mercies mm -hmm. so she shows up again um well i think first of all you have to set up the final scene in the context of his conversation with his uncle um and when he says i always figured when i got older god would come into my life he didn't i don't blame him i got the same opinion of myself so, so there's this notion of, you know, God didn't come into my life. I'm not worthy of God. And so I think as is always the case with, with dreams, it's, it's a dream, right? In other words, it's, it's a, it's a, it's what he, it's what he's hoping for. It's what he's wishing that there's some kind of, you know, whether his father is going ahead before him in death or however you want to symbolize that, you know, that he's going to be there with the fire. Um, but everything about the way his, the, everything about the way it, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, filmed everything about the just the look on his face and you said the ticking of the clock it suggests that like a dream it's it is a dream it's a fantasy it's a hope but it's it's not that's not the way it's going to going to play out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well I love this movie it's it, it's 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 one of those that I can keep coming back to again and again and I I find different things I think different things I think I imagine over the course of one's life, this is a movie that will read differently at different moments in life as well. Um, I should say 2007 is, as I said earlier, is one of the great years for movies. So this wins best picture, best director, best screenplay, best supporting actor in this same year. This is the, a year that I basically missed movies. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, Fincher's Zodiac, which is, I think, my favorite Fincher movie. The Coens make this. You also get Michael Clayton and Atonement away from her juno um and we're a year before the beginning of kind of the uh the superhero movie mm. thing that we all have to deal with right like like it's 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 interesting this is right before that this is also the end of kind of the bush era uh, these are movies that are sort of you know pre-financial crisis um wars in iraq and afghanistan i mean i feel like like these are all sort of thinking about america at a certain moment in its existence even if it's not set during those times 
and it kind of launched Josh Brolin's career. He, mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he was practically out of the business when he was cast in this film and it really kind of launched him too. All right, Bear, what do you have for us for next week? Well, I think we're going to finish with our sight and sound top 10. So next week it's Beau Cheval, um, which uh, is a, uh, a very uh, well-regarded contemporary uh, French filmmaker, Claire Denis. Uh, and this is a film that's been uh, kind of embraced by critics from the moment it, it came out. And um, it's uh, I think it was number eight on the sight and sound top 10. Oh, I'm so excited for this. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for having this conversation, for watching this movie with me, for uh, recommending that we revisit the, this film. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Beau Traval in the video store. Mm -hmm.